Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. I'm Trace. We're airing another episode from the archives, and it's something that's more relevant now than it even was in October of 2016 when it first aired. We're talking about propaganda. Today, the accusations of propaganda are being thrown by political jerks everywhere, but there's a difference between taking a stance and propaganda. And obviously, this is going to be the best, most all-American episode ever because there is no episode that is better than this one. Because propaganda. I just did the same pun when this aired in 2016. I think it's still funny. Today, we're going to talk about when did we start using propaganda, what its uses actually are, what propaganda is exactly, which is actually going to be pretty fun because that's tough to define. We're going to talk about how propaganda works and also how it doesn't work sometimes. Over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to get into psychology and history and theories of propaganda, what it really is, and let's kick into it. First, propaganda is not a new idea. It's a common misconception that it came from the beginning of the 20th century, but the concept of propaganda dates back way before World War I and World War II. I mean, many consider Alexander the Great's face on currency in the third century BCE as a form of propaganda. You know, they were spreading his face around and being like, check out this guy, he's pretty great, he's on money. That's pretty old, third century BCE. In fact, one of the earliest examples of total propaganda, like that's why it was created, was in 151 BCE with the Bastion inscription. I may have pronounced that wrong. B-E-H-I stun. Anyway, it's about Darius I's ascent to the Persian throne. So it's like, Darius is the best. Many early civilizations weren't able to produce any form of propaganda because if you think about it, you need a way to create something and then spread that information around. Even some of the earliest forms of propaganda weren't necessarily considered, you know, like free speech. For example, the citizen class of Greeks in Athens, they didn't have outlets for free speech. They didn't have newspapers. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have TVs and radios. But they were much more aware of issues that were facing their city-states, and they realized that the opinions on those issues were varied and that public opinion could be swayed. So they used games and theater and open courts and religious festivals, and that would help sway public opinion. Playwrights would deliberately write shows about politics and social and moral issues to get opinions out into the populace. Even handwritten books were making the rounds. And this is, of course, before the Gutenberg press. That wasn't for centuries and centuries. In the 12th and 13th centuries, Pope Urban II used religious propaganda to help gain support for the Crusades. In the early 1500s, Martin Luther used the newly invented printing press to make some of the first forms of propaganda, at least, you know, from a modern definition, talking about all sorts of religiously based beliefs that he had that were different from the church at the time. He sold hundreds of thousands of pamphlets to support the reformation of the church, many containing cartoons of the donkey pope of Rome. Wolf. Not too long after that, during the days of the Spanish Armada, this is around later 1500, 1588, the Spaniards wrote stories about their great victories at sea against England and spread them around France and Italy and were like, what up, we're the best, we're the best. But they were stories. They weren't actually true, like at all. The truth was the Spanish Armada had devastating losses. So think about that for a second. If that sounds familiar, it's because it should. That's what propaganda is for. It's supposed to tell you something and spread an opinion, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a true opinion. The Japanese and other countries used this tactic to keep the will of their citizens from crumbling uh, during long wars, saying, we're doing great, we're doing great out there, everybody, just keep on fighting and we'll get there. The term propaganda isn't negative in itself. It really is just to inform or spread information to the public. It originally came from Sacra Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, 
or Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith. It was a Vatican organization created in 1622 by Pope Gregory XV. As is normal in religion, its goal was to spread the faith and get that information out to the people so that they could hear the word of the Lord and come into the church and spend some money. The word propaganda actually comes from the word propagate, and it comes from Old Latin because it's Dinus Plus, so etymology time! So propag, which is something set out, and pra, to fasten. You got propagation, which includes spreading of plants. If you were to take a cutting from a plant and create another plant, you're propagating the plant. The Catholic Church also educated their missionaries, and they would call that propagating the faith as well, as we just mentioned. Then in 1929, in World War I, they had a definition that was material or information propagated to advance a cause, etc. And that's where we think of it today, is the propagation of information. You're taking this information and specifically advancing your cause. And eventually that became a negative in the United States because we saw other countries as doing it to combat us, especially during World War I and World War II, you know. I mentioned earlier the Japanese, uh, they were getting propaganda saying, keep fighting the war, we're winning, we're winning. And of course, uh, the Nazis in Germany in World War II, they had a lot of propaganda. But wasn't always just our enemies, the USA was also getting propaganda constantly, all the time, and we still do. From that point on, propaganda was used in so many instances throughout history. Once the Catholic Church created this institution with the goal of spreading information and spreading the faith, propaganda was then used in instances throughout history. Benjamin Franklin and Paul Revere created pieces of art that were made into pamphlets and papers and distributed throughout the colonies to help inspire public support to fight for freedom. Things like the snake cut up into pieces with the caption, join or die, that you probably recognize some of that as don't tread on me these days. Each snake representing a different colony. There's Paul Revere's depiction of the Boston Massacre, and that was just five years before the start of the Revolutionary War. Not too long after that, we saw the French Revolution, where there were tons and tons of different types of propaganda coming out of there. Voltaire and Rousseau were writing these anti-Bourbon sentiments, and the Bourbon family had reigning kings from 1589 to 1792. The French moderate Republican Party distributed broadsheets among enemy troops, offering rewards for people who were deserting. In fact, the more you look into the history of propaganda, the more that you see it used to have reputable and dignified associations, spreading ideas and information about a cause to try and gain support. And usually, history has judged them as just causes, but that did change around World War I, which I hinted at earlier. The advent of technology made propaganda easy to make and easy to distribute. And once that happened, propaganda could reach this mass audience. You could propagandize everyone. It wasn't just a leaflet that someone had created in order to tell you something important. It could be a leaflet created by anybody to tell anybody anything. And it spread like wildfire. But unfortunately, governments quickly began to censor. And propaganda developed this bad rap because only certain people were allowed to propagandize. And those people were not always the people you'd want to be able to do that. Governments began touting huge victories and belittling defeats and making light of things that maybe were more important and making a mountain out of a molehill that maybe shouldn't have been. All of this is to win over the hearts and minds of people, or at least keeping them cheerful and confident and united and discrediting the enemy at the same time. And this wasn't just happening in dictatorships. I mean, many of you are probably listening to this and picturing propaganda throughout American history because it has showed up in our country many times. I mean, we're in the middle of an election cycle, most political advertising, a lot of that is propaganda. I'm trying to spread my cause, spread my interest, speak to the people that 
maybe disagree with me and convince them otherwise. Many democratic nations that had free press worked with their governments toward national efforts. The Germans were the first to realize it wasn't just your own country and your enemies' countries that you wanted to propagandize, but neutral countries too. Because a lot of what we've talked about so far is me propagandizing you or my government propagandizing me. But what happens if my government starts propagandizing the enemy or somebody else? So the Germans set up powerful radio stations that were so powerful that they could broadcast to Mexico and South America. And over those radio waves, they would say that they were a favorable country and that the allies were not so great. And they were trying to cause uprisings in these colonial possessions of the Allies, because if you remember, prior to World War II, there were still empires from the West. So when Germany would say, hey, countries over in South America and Central America, throw off your imperial oppressors. You don't need those people. That's what we're trying to do. And that would make the Allies not look so great closer to, at least to the United States and the homeland there. And that's how it continued throughout the 20th century. I mean, we're still being propagandized now. Obviously, a big time for propaganda that we glossed over was World War II, but a lot of people talk about that. Rosie the Riveter and war bonds and, you know, the depictions of Jews by the Nazis. And it seems like propaganda can be associated with periods of stress and turmoil, but does that work? I mean, the goal is stories or information. The idea is to spread your cause, right? We were just talking about this. So we want to change the course of an insurgency. We want to frame a negotiation. We want to play a role in a political radicalization. We want to influence methods or goals of violent social movements. This is all according to DARPA by the way. And in case you're wondering why DARPA is involved, more on that in a second. Basically, propaganda is information based in bias. It's coming at you from a slant. You could argue that many of the cable news stations we watch today are filled with more propaganda than they are news, because that's where propaganda and news are separated. News is supposed to come at you without a slant, just to present information that you then decide what to do with. This does not present information. Propaganda presents bias. And again, it's used to promote a particular point of view. So if you ask yourself when you're looking at something, if it's promoting a particular point of view, obviously, then it's probably propaganda more than anything else. We've already talked about propaganda throughout history, but what about how it works? DARPA plans to team up with neuroscientists to find out exactly that. The project that they're creating is called Narrative Networks. If the Pentagon understands how stories can alter how you think, they hope to find those vulnerable to violent ideas, those in the process of being recruited by terrorist groups, for example, and present counter-messaging to help keep them away from terrorist groups using propaganda. Most of the time, again, we think about propaganda as a negative. Try and push that out of your mind because propaganda and positivity is not necessarily mutually exclusive. Propaganda is bias, but what the propaganda is about can be positive or negative. We don't have their findings, by the way, from the narrative networks yet, but it got us wondering how propaganda does play a role in this terrorist recruitment. I went to the summit on extremism that YouTube put on a while ago, uh, and we talked about how terrorist groups use tools like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and other social medias to try and recruit people and educate them about their specific viewpoints. And many people categorize ISIS using those same networks. And they'll say things like, ISIS is a mental illness. They're religious fanatics. They're nihilistic. And there might actually be a deeper psychology here because propaganda relies very heavily on biased images and speeches and videos. Usually it hits your emotional centers before it hits your intellectual centers. And they usually target fear as the emotion that they want to bring out in you because it's a very powerful emotion and it doesn't make you 
think about things. It makes you react. So ISIS is out there making videos and tweeting and trying to get people to listen to their propaganda and the Pentagon and the State Department and people all over the world are tweeting back and trying to get you to listen to their propaganda. So not only is propaganda no longer a pamphlet being handed to you, but now it's surrounding you and it's everywhere and that's really interesting. Many people uh, join terrorist organizations not purely on religious beliefs, but a need to find personal significance. They need to matter or be respected or be recognized in the eyes of others, and without it, they feel like they may have no purpose. That is one way that propaganda can target people to get them to come and join up. They get to be part of something larger. A militant group's extremist propaganda strategically exploits stuff like that. Scott Atran, an anthropologist who advises the United Nations and the White House on terrorism, said that ISIS recruiters can spend hundreds of hours analyzing problems around the world, problems in the lives of the recruits or the people they're targeting to recruit, and they connect those to larger problems that ISIS is fighting, or so the recruiters tell the people they're trying to recruit. They take this and then they couple it with the shattering of identity, which comes back to fear, and a skewed depiction of one's degradation as a group. Essentially, your country is degraded, is, you know, is problematic. ISIS is trying to build the perfect nation, right? So they'll say something like that to try and get people to join up. The thing is, there is no such thing as a perfect nation. And your country may be degraded from one point of view, but not from another. It depends on how you look at it. All of that is skewed way out of the way with bias, which is how the propaganda works. And this only works if you don't think about it and you just react to it, right? If I tell you America is the greatest country in the world, and you never think about what that means and what the greatest country really is, that's propaganda, right? Because what is the greatest country in the world? How can you decide? It might be one of... It probably is a lot of things. But just saying a statement like that is very difficult to back up with facts, and it makes it very difficult to not just call it propaganda. The question also that comes to mind is, is propaganda ethical? That really depends on how extreme the propaganda is. Saying America is the greatest country in the world isn't super extreme. Most countries, most people, most teams, they are the number one, right? My team's number one, your team's number one. Every team can't be number one, but everybody says they're the best in the world. Mom's famous cookies, world famous, best in the world, right? We all do that. It's part of kind of building ourselves up. But if you talk about it in extreme ways and start to break down other people, that can be a problem. And as things get more and more extreme, they get less and less ethical. As we said earlier, propaganda isn't always a bad thing. When it's used in politics and war, things can get very dicey. Uh, and there are types of propaganda that are positive that you have been exposed to. For example, anti-smoking propaganda. One commercial in Thailand uh, called The Smoking Kid used hidden cameras to film small children walking up to adults who were smoking and asked them to light a cigarette that the kid was holding. The adults told them that smoking was bad. The kids then handed them a piece of paper saying, why do you care about me and not yourself? That's pretty powerful propaganda. It resulted in a 40% increase of people calling to quit in Thailand. Five million views were made on that video in 10 days. It's a pretty powerful piece of propaganda, but it is propaganda right? The CDC had an anti-smoking campaign that you might remember. Tips from a former smoker campaign. It had a woman with a stoma or a hole in her neck after larynx cancer. So they had to remove her larynx in a laryngectomy. And she talks to the camera about how she gets ready for the day. People who smoke are 40 times more likely to get this type of cancer than non-smokers. In 2013, 89,000 people in the U.S. were living with larynx cancer. 
She puts on fake teeth and a wig and a hands-free device that she inserts into her stoma and says, now you're ready for the day. That's another pretty powerful piece of propaganda, but one could argue it's positive propaganda. It's a health propaganda. It's trying to get people to be more healthy. The question is, how effective is propaganda? When it comes to spreading messages of war and policy and, you know, things that are a little more nebulous, it's hard to measure directly how many people weren't going to vote for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Gary Johnson or Jill Stein and now are going to vote for them based on propaganda that was put out by one group, another group, or anyone. However, when it comes to stuff like smoking and health ads, those are usually put out with a specific goal in mind. So in 2012, a study in The Lancet showed 1.6 million smokers tried to quit in response and 100,000 succeeded thanks to these ads, these anti-smoking propaganda ads. That was in 2012. The Truth Campaign tells teens that smoking is not a form of rebellion, but rather an industry telling them what they should do and them doing it. Uh, A body bag commercial launched in the year 2000 shows protester teens putting 1,200 empty body bags outside of the Philip Morris headquarters. They see in the commercial an employee looking down through the window while protesters with megaphones ask if they know that 1,200 people die from tobacco every day. Another very powerful piece of propaganda. All of those things are propaganda that you've seen, experienced, or maybe you even knew existed already. What about internet propaganda? It totally exists. I mean, based on what your definition of propaganda is, uh, which if you listen to communications professor Philip Taylor, propaganda is really no more than the communication of ideas designed to persuade people to think and behave in a desired way. So propaganda is posting your point of view on Facebook. You are trying to convince people that you are correct. You are trying to propagate your beliefs to others. We are propagandizing each other now, which is kind of insane, right? Ben Franklin and Paul Revere were trying to incite a war by propagandizing their fellow Americans. And the Nazis were trying to, you know, tell everyone that things were going okay or that there are bad people in the world and they were not them. And Americans were trying to say, don't talk to your fellow man about what's going on with your brother in the war because the enemy could hear it. And now you're telling your friend, dude, pumpkin spice lattes are the best. And you're propagandizing, technically. It's kind of weird. If you post a single point of view and that post gets liked and shared or retweeted or reblogged or whatever, is that propaganda? What do you think? Did we go too far in D News Plus today? Calling you propagandizing jerks out there? You're not really jerks. Basically, I'm accusing everything of being propaganda, but is that really true? Because we mentioned this just a minute ago. Images and videos and biased news articles and posts about your favorite musical artist, are those all propaganda? Can anything that tries to change someone else's view be propaganda? I mean, maybe. One definition I found that I really like comes from former professor of international communications at the University of Leeds, Phil Taylor. Essentially, propaganda is no more than the communication of ideas designed to persuade people to think and behave in a desired way. The disagreement about what propaganda really is comes from whether all persuasive communication is propagandistic or if it's just the negative stuff. And who's really the authority who can decide that? Is it all subjective? I mean, no, it's not all subjective. There are specific ways that people propagandize each other. One, for example, is called name-calling also known as character assassination. Pretty straightforward. Basically, this type of propaganda links a person or idea to a universally negative symbol. You can probably think of some examples of this already when people are called commies or fascists or crooked or any number of other things, liars. Uh, Mike Goodwin coined an observation on Usenet 
uh, for the millennials in the audience who might have been too young at the time and those even younger. Uh, this was in 1990. It was early internet and it was a discussion board similar to a like a Craigslist or a 4chan, if you will, but without all of the terribleness. Um, and it's now called Godwin's Law. A guy named Mike Godwin coined this observation as the, quote, natural law of Usenet. And it was an internet adage, according to Know Your Meme, that is derived from one of the earliest bits of Usenet wisdom, which goes, quote, if you mention Adolf Hitler or Nazis within a discussion thread, you've automatically ended whatever discussion you were taking part in. Or you could also Google the Reductio Ad Hitlerium. It's a Wikipedia page that talks about the longer a conversation is, the more likely someone will mention the Nazis or Hitler. That's part of Godwin's law. So the idea being you're trying to character assassinate somebody to get your beliefs across. If I can make you Hitler, now I can say whatever I want. You're seeing this a lot in the current election cycle. Politicians use a lot of these techniques uh, that we're going to talk about. There's the opposite of name calling, which is essentially glittering generalities, speaking about universally positive symbols uh, based on personal history. For example, patriotism, that's a great one. Democracy, uh, being fair and balanced and, uh, you know, having all of these more kind of lofty concepts, and you're trying to pull them into yourself in a very general way. That's also propaganda. Logical fallacies is another type of propaganda because logic is the process of drawing a conclusion from one or more premises. So you have these bases of fact and you build logic onto them. So an example of someone using a logical fallacy is propaganda. Again, we're going to go back to politics because it's very easy and, and we are in the middle of an election cycle in the U.S. So premise one, Hillary Clinton supports gun control legislation. Premise two, all fascist regimes of the 20th century have passed gun control legislation. So therefore, in a logical fallacy, Hillary Clinton Clinton, who supports gun control legislation, is therefore a fascist. Nope, that doesn't work. This is completely false because that is a logical fallacy. <laughs> the easiest way to show that logical fallacies are inconsistent is to break it down into easier terms. Essentially, premise one, all Christians believe in God. Premise two, all Muslims believe in God. Conclusion, all Christians are Muslims. If one, then two, so two equals one. It doesn't really work. It's a logical fallacy. And these happen all the time on the internet, and they're very difficult to point out because you have to lay them out as simple as possible. You have to go through and think about them. And if you don't think about it and you just appeal to the emotional response in your audience or the emotional response in the person you're talking to, then of course, eh, some of these things get past our logical barrier. Another type of propaganda is the bandwagon effect, or basically people have already joined the cause, so you should belong to us. Join us. Come jump on the bandwagon. If all of your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? That's a bandwagon comment. An example of that is a political party rally. I'm going to the political party. Are you going to go to the political party? We should all go to the political party. Everybody's going to be there. Sidebar, by the way, term bandwagon is from the temperance movement. It was a literal wagon that had a band playing on it, would drive around and pick up drunks to start an alcohol-free religious living. And sidebar, bandwagon. Another type of propaganda is information management. So you would gather a ton of information by digging into a person's past. You dumpster dive and you spy on them and you verify all that information. Then you spin it. You get from that amplification, which makes things seem even more grandiose than they really are. You would downplay stuff that you don't like. You would distort so kind of give half-truths based on the information that you do know or make things that are true have a little doubt in them so people don't like them anymore. You use statistics or you just lie. 
This stuff happens a lot in political punditry. You make it sound like you know what you're talking about by having all of this information, but then you don't present it in a factual way. You present it in a biased way. When big organizations create seemingly independent sites that then push back to an organization. We actually had this happen to us recently where a an org, a .org, sent us an email and said one of our episodes was incorrect based on this doctor who wrote it. Uh, however, if you looked up the doctor and you found the organization that he worked for and then you found the parent of that organization, it's a lobbying firm for people who disagree with the premise of the original video that they wrote an email about. So they were propagandizing us, but doing it in a more private way. There are so many different types of propaganda, so let's fly through a few more. Plain folks, so if a leader appears ordinary, that makes you trust them more. An example might be in the first presidential debate, Hillary referenced her father in the debate, trying to seem more plain folksy. There's slogans, which are short, simple phrases, so things like, yes, we can, labor isn't working, uh, and you can even put into things stuff like Brexit, which already makes you want to exit, right? Those are all part of the propaganda. Uh, Obamacare is another bit of propaganda. It's a slogan to make you remind you who passed the Affordable Care Act. Well, it was Obama. If I don't like Obama, then I'm not going to like the ACA, regardless of what's in the ACA. There are things like testimonials, which are celebrity endorsements, and they have support from all of the dentists who agree. You know, all of those things are ways to propagandize information, to slant it toward a specific ideal. And again, some of these are positive and some of these are negative. I have a degree uh, from American University in strategic communication. We learned a lot of these in various concepts and in different ways. If you want somebody to do something, Thing, then you will do a different type of propaganda than if you want somebody to not do something. If I want somebody to do something, I might make up a bandwagon, or I might get a celebrity, or I might get somebody who's plain folks. I'll get a guy who's uh, Larry the Cable Man to try and sell you antacid medication because you like Larry, and therefore you'll buy that antacid. You know, you can see these things everywhere. If I want you to not do something, then I might spin it into a negative way, or I'll make you doubt the truth of something, or I'll say, oh no, that can't be right. Have you thought about this? And I'll try and get you to dislike something. All of these are communication strategies that are used constantly, especially in things like advertising and political campaigning. In fact, one thing we talked about in my master's program about this specific topic uh, concerned a paper co-authored by two professors, one from Ohio State, one from the University of Chicago, came out in the 1980s. And the idea behind the paper is that there are two roots to persuasion. There's central and peripheral. This gets a little heady, but stick with me. So the central root is when a person considers the message. They centrally process it. And they have two prerequisites in order to do this. It can only occur when the receiver has both the motivation and the ability to think about the message and its topic. They have to centrally process it by one, seeing your ad, and two, reading your ad. If the listener doesn't care about the topic of the persuasive message, they will most certainly lack the motivation to process your ad. There's also the peripheral route to persuasion, which happens when the listener decides whether to agree with the message based on cues besides the strength of the arguments or any idea at all that's presented in the message. Peripheral processing is more emotional. Usually an ad that has no words, they're trying to peripherally process it. An ad with lots of words, they might be trying to get you to centrally process it. A listener may decide to agree with a message because the source appears to be an expert or they're attractive. Basically, the person doesn't know what to think about an issue, so they take cues from things that they think are important. That's the peripheral route. 
This root occurs when the person is unable or unwilling to engage and think about the message. People who take peripheral processing, they're more passive. They don't want to think about it. Thinking requires resources. The brain has to burn energy to think about a message. A really great example of a peripherally processed message was from a hunger bank, a food bank, and they had a saltine cracker on a giant billboard. And I drove by it and I thought, wow, that is a powerful message. And all it said next to it was this giant saltine cracker and it said, the only square meal some folks get. You don't really have to think about it. As soon as you read the ad, as soon as you glance at it, you get it. You've processed it emotionally. Now, the more you think into the ad, the more you think, oh, well, saltines come in a box. There's lots of them, <laughs> right? You can start to break down, oh, well, there are some things in this that don't work. But emotionally, in a peripheral way, that is a great ad. You can also do this with movie posters. They usually try to get you to peripherally process the film. Who's the hero? Who's the villain? All of these things are peripheral. Whereas things like the ad council or anti-smoking ads, they want you to centrally process things. They want you to take a second and look at the ad and really see it. There's a great one about food waste in San Francisco right now where the whole billboard is covered with half an empty bag of bread and it says, you know, use by this date. And the idea being, this is a lot of food in this picture. It's a peripherally processed ad that you see lots of food and you want to know, oh, what's up? And then you have to read it to really understand what it's trying to tell you, and that's don't waste food. There's a lot of it. So those are different ways to create advertising or create propaganda that make you think of different things. A really great example of a centrally processed ad is pretty much anything related to health. So next time you see a healthcare-related ad, there are ways of centrally processing it when they want it to be healthy for you, and then people who want you to not think about it tend to just tell you how great it is, right? Drug ads that want you to take their drug, they're usually all about telling you how great your life could be. They don't really explain too much about why you would need the drug. They just want you to ask your doctor about it. But anti-smoking ads, they have to make you really think. They have to make you understand what's up in order for you to get it. But of course, all of this comes back to the idea of how we process those messages. And we've all heard of subliminal messaging right? It's a buzzword. It was coined by a market researcher named James Vickery in the 1950s, and he claimed to have been able to increase moviegoers' purchase of Coke by more than 18% and popcorn sales by 57% by flashing messages at one three-thousandth of a second on the screen. This started a frenzy of advertisers trying to replicate the findings of this guy, and the FCC even banned the use of subliminal advertising in 1974, but it turns out this dude was lying the whole time because several other studies concluded subliminal messaging doesn't actually have an effect on anybody. It doesn't work. People still believe they are motivated by messages that they see or hear in advertisements that they cannot prove are there. Or in music, if you play it a certain way or on a certain type of speaker, that's a subliminal ad. So far, based on scientific studies, it doesn't seem that these have to work. Because essentially, now that you know about peripheral processing and central processing, which one would subliminal advertising be? It's peripheral. You cannot centrally process subliminal advertising. So how can I get you to care about something if I can only make you react to it emotionally, right? I can't make you buy popcorn emotionally. You have to go buy it. I have to make you want popcorn somehow. And doing that in one three thousandths of a second is pretty tough. Propaganda is everywhere. And knowing more about it is the main tool we have in fighting it. If you're worried about propaganda, if you're worried about subliminal messaging, all you have to do is make yourself aware that it is around you. If you centrally process a piece of propaganda meant to be peripherally processed, it doesn't work. If you centrally process something and understand that you're processing it, it may not work either. 
It depends on what it is. But being conscious of its presence and being propagandized will help you to find it in your life. And believe me, it's everywhere. Also, Seeker Plus is the best show ever. Oh, I made that pun in 2016 too. Oh, still works, 2018, yeah. You guys are the best. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really hope you liked it. If you did, leave us a rating. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app, whichever one that is, and share us with your friends. Thank you so much for hanging out with me here on Seeker Plus. Just a reminder, we do have a video series of the newest episodes of Seeker Plus on our YouTube channel. You can get them as they come out week over week on youtube.com slash seeker. If you don't want to wait for the newest stuff, you can find us at Seeker, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Trace Dominguez. This episode was originally written by Blair Battenberg and Donna Mae Ferranda. It was edited by Braith Miller and Blair Battenberg. Ciara Williams and Matt Pignol recorded it. We've got Victoria Barrios as our associate producer, our production assistant, Megan Bates, and our interns, Danisha Calderon and Debbie Hainan. Thanks again for listening to Seeker Plus. We'll be back next week with more gross science about cockroaches. Seriously, it's going to be really creepy. I'm Trace. Thanks again. Thanks again.